Thank you for tuning in to Brewed Up, a podcast where two LA-based female homebrewers chat, laugh, and learn about craft beer, homebrewing, and whatever else comes to mind. Tyler and Lloyd both have brewed many styles of beer, cider, and mead, and are always up for experimenting. This show is available to listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor.fm, and wherever else you like to listen. Now, here's the show. All right, cool. So I guess we'll just jump right into it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we're going to drink the... I'll, we'll ask you about this in a sec. Just let me just pour a little bit. So, Alex, you have some, right? Yeah, hey. I've got bottles. Wait, what are we drinking first? The Rosier. The Rosier. I'm actually terrified of opening champagne bottles. Don't. (laughs) It won't explode. Actually, not to be a weirdo, but could everyone just hold it up real quick for cuteness? Yeah. Such a weirdo. For cuteness level 100. (laughs) Okay. Um, Cool. So we shall begin. Are you ready? Ready. All right. Fire away. (laughs) Good evening, and thank you for tuning in to Brewed Up. Tonight, we have the unique pleasure of chatting with the proprietor and brewer of one of the most unique breweries around, Celador Ales. Kevin, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Celador Ales has only just celebrated four years. Congrats, by the way. And has already become an iconic L.A. brewery and one of the only 100% oak barrel fermented craft breweries in all the United States, which is fantastic. Yeah. Yes. I know that was true when we started. I actually don't know how many there are now. I'm sure that there are quite a few more. Maybe, but, you know, you guys are the most important, so. (laughs) You're our favorite. So, uh, Kevin, tell us what we're drinking right now. Yeah, this is a beer called uh, Cezanne de Rosier. We had um, sort of just made one barrel of it the first time we made it, which was a couple years ago. And it was just really to prop up some Cezanne yeast that we were planning to use. And we ended up liking the barrel a lot. And so I thought we'd do a sort of, um, you know, homage to um, Cezanne de Ponce and do it in green bottles with corks, which isn't our normal, our normal style. Um, it wasn't like supposed to be a clone or anything like that. Uh, and it was really just the idea that it was the only beer we'd ever made that was not mixed culture, not a sour beer, technically. And then uh, when Alex came on to work with us, he like convinced us to make it into a beer that we'd always have around. And so now we've done a lot of it. Damn. Go ahead, Alex. <laughs> yeah. That's just because I want to drink it all the time. Yeah. <laughs> all going on there. Selfish <laughs> reasons only. Yeah, Absolutely. So, um, awesome. yeah, uh, Alex, tell us a little about your history and, and when your history with Celador. So I joined Celador, I guess, just about two years ago now. Um, and really just because I knew Kevin and Sarah from a cheese company that I had previously, where we would do cheese and beer pairings together. Um, and I was kind of looking for a change and they happened to be looking for somebody to join the team at the same time. So I joined about two years ago as the sales manager and, you know, try to get my hands into a bunch of different corners of the brewery and, you know, talk about blending with Kevin and involve myself as much as I can in other areas. But really most of what I do is, uh, uh, you know, sales and managing the tap room. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Very cool. Can you, um, I guess, Kevin, tell us like... A little bit about you don't have to go into the full history of Celador, but you know just briefly how you started. Um, was it home brewing? Why did you decide to do primarily, or I guess one hundred percent oak barrel fermentation? Yeah, um, I got into home brewing um, like maybe six or seven years ago, and before that, I had been into craft beer for a long time. I grew up in Southern California. And since we were like 21 or 22, my friends and I used to go to San Diego a lot and go to Lost Abbey and Stone. Um, And then um, 
I had a roommate who wanted to try out home brewing and I said, I'll do it with you and sort of fell in love with it instantly. And he kind of didn't like it as much as I did. And so <laughs> I ended up doing it by myself, myself most of, most of the time and um, sort of became obsessed with it. And I was brewing every week or a couple of times a week and then really got the like bug to maybe try and open my own place. And so got a part-time job working at Golden Road while they were, before they sold out working in the packaging line and then I worked at Stone for a couple months in San Diego as like a sort of assistant brewer position. And then um, really started focusing on writing a business plan and getting some money together. And uh, I guess just kind of got lucky and it all came together. When you were home brewing, and by the way, we know nothing about being obsessed with home brewing. So just kidding. <laughs> yeah. uh, when you were home brewing, yeah. were you working with um, barrel and sours and things like that or... Yeah. In the beginning, we were making IPAs and like normal beers. And then uh, I was sort of intimidated by the idea of sour beers, but started trying it out and doing a bunch of research and reading books and talking to people. And uh, I think fell in love with that even way more than I did with homebrewing and pretty quickly turned to making only beers like that. I had one like 15 gallon barrel at home, but mostly it was like carboys, but made in the same kind of process that we're using still today, like mixed culture, primary fermentations. What, what drew you, you to for wanting to ferment in barrels? Like, is what's so, so what's specifically about that? Or I guess is there a, a character that you are going after, or go after, or got like attached to with that process? That's a good question. I don't remember exactly what made me want to do that. I think it was. I think the main reason was more of a practical thing, where like we'd have a lot more flexibility to blend with things, and also not have to have as much stainless steel in the brewery. So like it was cheaper for us to get started. We could just um, buy barrels and have one packaging tank. And basically that's still the way we operate today. <laughs> um, I think that there's a, there's also sort of like a, something romantic, I think about uh, making beer and oak, something like traditional and unique and like, um, I think romantic's the right word actually. Old school. I just like old school, like making it in wood, you know, it's like, it's a living, a living thing that we're putting beer into and it like is porous and um, it's, you have to maintain it because it leaks. It's just like a really kind of hands-on fun um, and also challenging thing to do. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that drew me to Celador beers before I was ever working with, uh, with Kevin and Sarah at Celador was, you know, just even kind of coming from cheese, there's a similar idea, which is like you want to take really awesome natural products and you don't want to mess with them too much, right? Like you want to kind of take a process that happened organically and figure out how to guide it a little bit, but only touch it as much as you need to touch it in order to get it to a really great place. And then, you know, kind of have uh, the approach that says that your job is to find the best possible expression of you know, a process that you're doing really very little intervention when. Um, and so I think that, you know, when Kevin talks about fermenting in oak barrels, like part of it came of necessity when he started the brewery and part of it was just easier and more practical. But in a way, it's kind of that more like romantic, esoteric version of production that really says that, you know, we're just going to be as hands off as possible and let the beer do what the beer wants to do and actually create an environment for the beer to, you know, for two barrels to diverge more than they might if primary fermentation happened together in a single tank and then deal with blending on the backside to kind of create some quality control. But to me, that that's like what's romantic about the product and the process from the beginning, right? The idea of it's not just a recipe, it's not just a flavor profile that you're trying to create, but it really is harnessing something that's happening naturally and something that's happening organically and something that can go in wildly different directions, you know, and then finding the beauty in that. Absolutely. And also like um, it gives us a lot more flexibility and a lot more like colors to work with. I'd say when we're like blending and making beers, because even like within one batch, we might fill like seven or eight barrels and we might do different things with the fermentation on them. We actually keep uh, five different house cultures, which, um, started in different things, different dregs and different uh, lab cultures and different wild yeasts. And a lot of times we'll use them together, but a lot of times we'll do like individual barrels in a batch. And um, 
it just gives us, yeah, like I said, more like more different individual flavors to work with. And I feel like when you're blending, if you're using lots of different flavors, you're going to get a more complex beer. Yeah. Totally. I, mean, I, I remember a lot of times where Kevin, you know, has pulled barrel samples for us to do blending. And it's like, well, these all came out of the same batch, but this one barrel did this really weird thing. And so we want to use it in this blend because it does, you know, it adds something really interesting and compelling, which I think is a lot of fun. I think it's interesting that you guys keep saying like practical and easier because like when I think of doing stuff with barrels, it's like the opposite. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, I I personally would love to start messing around with barrel stuff. I don't have that much space, but I'm hoping to get like a 15 gallon one here at some point and start playing with it. But obviously that's more fun when you have like a shit ton of barrels to I think a 15 gallon is like the perfect size for home brewing because if you go too small, then like you're making essentially no beer and like really the barrels aren't made very well when they're like five gallons. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's some really high quality 15 gallon barrels out there. There's a lot of uh, distilleries that are doing stuff like exclusively in 15 gallon barrels to try and like extract wood character quicker. And so you can find them around too. I want to go back to something you said a minute ago when you were... um talking about like your business plan and putting, you know, your, um, your site is mostly just the, uh, the fermentation and the packaging. Yep. Is that what you just sort of thought of and then made it the, the, the business plan or did all the decisions come together and make sense to just, did, did you want to do this when you first set out? Yeah, it's, it's pretty much exactly what we were planning to do. Um, there were a couple breweries that were just getting started right before us that were sort of pioneering this, um, style of brewery, like the Rare Barrel and Casey Brewing and Blending and, uh, Casa Agria was like this for their first couple of years. And they started just like six or 12 months before us. Um, and so was really inspired by that sort of uniqueness of a way to open a brewery. Um, and so, yeah, it's exactly what we were planning to do. Cool. And just so that I get it straight, you're, the barrels are 15 gallons each and you're fermenting and you're allowing for different unique characters, whatever happens, and then you're blending that together and then packaging? Yeah, most of our barrels are actually 60 gallons. We, oh. we only have like one 15-gallon oh. barrel, which is the one I had home brewing. Yeah, they got the um, big boys over there. Not bad, they're standard, not bad. standard wine size barrels. Actually, we have a range from 59 to 132-gallon barrels. Like Whoa. a punch-in is a 132-gallon barrel. And so, uh, I sorry, I got focused on that part of your question. But what was the other thing? Yeah, we're like blending out of those. Is ev- All the barrels are unique, and then you're putting them together and then packaging that batch? Yeah, so we make uh, maybe like eight or ten different base beers that we put into barrels. Okay. And there are a couple of those that are specifically for specific beers. Like uh, we make a beer called Berlinerisch, which is like a Berliner inspired kind of beer. And that beer is almost always blended from that one batch. But most of the beers we make are blended from like a variety of different batches of different um, base beers. And we'd make, you know, mostly we make different beers every time we make a beer. We make Rosier, which is like a core beer, and we make two or three other things that we have all year round. And everything else is um, kind of changes a lot. Changes a lot. How how difficult is it keeping so those like few core ones that you guys produce um, more than one time? How difficult is it producing those multiple times over when like there's barrels doing all sorts of crazy stuff all over your brewery yeah Yeah, it's something we're still experimenting with and we talk about a lot um there's definitely a weird balance between like trying to package it at the right time where we feel it tastes best and also like needing beer at a certain time or having like way too much of a certain beer and so yeah we're very much still like experimenting with it and to a certain extent we like embrace the changes because obviously with this kind of product um, it's not going to taste the exact same, but we're blending it to try and taste as similarly as possible. Um, and um, yeah, it's just a, it's a kind of, it's a different approach than the most of our beers, but um, I think we've got a pretty good system now down for it. Yeah. I mean, I, 
To me, like even as we look at the core beers, obviously we want to create some consistency. We want to have a flavor that people feel like they know and can depend on. But I think that part of the charm, you know, not just to keep riffing on what I was saying before, but like part of the charm of this style of production is the variation on some level, right? And like the, you know, even if you have the same base beer that goes into the same set of barrels and one happens during the summer and one happens during the winter, you know, maybe the summer batch matures more quickly. And it's not just that it gets there faster, but that has implications for flavor development and stuff too. And so I think that like, you know, obviously we want to create some level of consistency, but I think that we would be engaging in a fundamentally different product like project if we weren't embracing some of that variation too. Yeah. So you expect nuances between batches, but you're still aiming for a general profile with your different core ones. Very cool. Control is about defining the range of variation that we're comfortable with. Yeah. Right. So it's a, you know, for some beers that may be a narrower range. And also this is more Kevin's purview than mine. This is me you know, getting my hands into different weird corners of the brewery and, and, you know, even inserting my opinion here. But, you know, I think that like for Rosier, we may have a narrower range of flavor that we're trying to achieve. And for other brands, it may be that there's more variation year to year that's acceptable, but there's always a range. It's never a, like a single straight line. Yeah. With Rosier, especially I'll say that like we try and use, we really only use barrels that haven't had sour cultures in them before, but really every time we brew it, there's a barrel or two that has quite a bit more acidity and we'll just use it for some other beer. We'll grind it into something else and we won't use it as part of like the rosier blend for that release. Yeah. I like I, drinking it now. It's, is this the, actually, is this the one that I helped bottle this round? No, really? This one is Holy from um, January. Oh, gotcha. oh, I don't know. What's what does yours say? Mine is from January. I don't know if we pulled from the same thing. Oh, gosh. I don't even know. Oh, yeah. January. January 2020. Yeah. So that was um, the newest batch. Usually, like, especially with the core beers, like, we have, we try and keep them around always. So we have a pretty large, like, back stock of them. Um, and also, we tend to like them, like, with more and more age on them. Um, at least like three months, six months, even a year is like great for this beer, I think, in the bottle. Wow. That's patience right there. <laughs> Do you, um, so in terms of growing your cultures, keeping them alive, what is that process like? And I know you guys use a lot of yeah. um, Britannomyces and stuff like that, which I'm super into. I love bread. I want to keep experimenting with it. Yeah, yeah. It's a very, very rudimentary, like, homebrew type setup. So we have a bunch of carboys that we have them in. And when we're brewing or bottling, we'll, like, empty some of it out. And then um, when we have fresh wort, we'll just top them off again. And we basically almost never clean them. Um, and Wait, what's the word for that? Word for like, solera, maybe? There's, yeah. there's, like, certain words... It's it's very much like making a um like a sourdough starter. Yeah. Where you just kinda keep feeding it and like replenishing it and taking a little bit out. Um and they started like I'd say if you want to do it as a home brewer, just take some bottles of your best sour beer that you're pretty sure isn't uh filtered or uses like wine yeast or anything for bottle conditioning and uh dump it in with some wort and um I'd say grow it up a couple times, feed it every couple weeks before you use it. And then, uh, yeah, that's, I think that's the best way to do it. Like the, the stuff you get from labs for like bread or mixed cultures, it's not very hardy. It doesn't work very well mm. unless you like give it a couple generations on it. And so, um, the lab stuff is great, especially for like single bread strains. I like bootleg biology a lot. And, uh, what's the one in San Francisco? It does. Yeast Bay or whatever. Yeast Bay is pretty great too, exactly. Um, but I think bottle dregs are like really the best way to like get really good sour cultures. Just steal stuff from other breweries. Steal our dregs. I was actually great. just <laughs> checking out. Is there a yeast hit down there? <laughs> hit <Yeah. laughs> at the bottom. That's cool. That's some good, yeah, home brewer advice. I was going to ask um, if you had any. So do you have any Brett? that you've or any i guess uh either lacto or pedococcus that you've caught like in the wilds or are they all 
from or i guess where i primarily yeah. where would you catch it yeah most most of our stuff is from labs or bottles but some of our cultures came from um just throwing some peaches into warts um like kind of crush them up lightly and throw them in whole and let them grow up over like takes it takes a little longer it takes a couple of weeks for it to really get going but some of it is from that and that's really the only wild cultures we have i think is from peaches that's rad that's super rad <laughs> why are you smiling at i was just scrolling and also it's <laughs> really good um i don't like yeah. the dupont i'm not a big fan of but i think this is exceptional by the way this is much funkier than DuPont. Obviously, there's a lot of there's there's almost certainly some Brett in there that gets in somewhere in the process. Um, you get like a lot of those like pineapple-y, mm-hmm. um, fruity flavors from it. It really and and what Brett does, in my opinion, is and it says on takes a lot of those like really kind of harsher like phenolics, the really peppery, um, harsh stuff, and grounds it out into like beautiful stone fruity tropical flowery flavors i gotta bring yeah. you one of the brett saisons i made because i felt that same exact way oh. it was like kind of too phen- phenolic phenolic how do you say it? phenolic phenolic yeah. yeah and then it's been aging and every time i try it, it just feels like a lot better less intense nice. aggressive so yeah we'd love to try it yeah for sure you guys can judge me it's okay <laughs> <laughs> so um I think one no, thing that's pretty cool about you guys are really focused on the fermentation and I honestly can't I couldn't imagine the amount of thoughtfulness and time you put into like blending and tasting and I couldn't imagine a hot side so you guys get your wort um, from another brewery can you talk about how did how did you decide that or how did you establish that or how does that relationship work yeah, um, we right now we use for the last couple of years we've only used McLeod Brewery in Van Nuys. Very cool. um, for the first couple of batches we did, we brewed with um, San Fernando Brewing, and right it on. was as, there was these like meetings a couple times like right when we started with all the San Fernando Valley Brewers, and it was like the very first time I had met Vic from San Fernando Valley Brewing, and he was and we were about to start looking for places to brew, and he's like, "Hey, come brew with us." And he was like the coolest guy and super low key and easy to work with. And so they were awesome. Um, and then they at some point ended up getting too busy where they couldn't brew for us as much as we wanted. And um, just kind of had a very similar conversation with McLeod where they they were had extra time and I think helped them out a little bit to like pay all their brewing staff. And so uh, it's a really great relationship that we have with them because they're low key and we try and be low key and um, I think most breweries are like that. They just kind of, kind of chill people. Wait, how are you busy? <laughs> Honestly, like, wow, they are pretty so busy. many beers too. I mean, they must be brewing like <laughs> they have two brands now. It's like, yeah, it's impressive. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you think about like the capacity of a brew house, it's like, it's a lot. You can brew 24 seven on it technically, you know? So like if they're making 15 barrels of beer, which is like, what, like 500 gallons of beer, like, um, they really to fulfill their needs only need to brew maybe twice a week or something. Damn. And so there's a ton of extra time and we're I think that that's, of it. that's one of the things that's been interesting is I've learned more about like the brewing, like what a brewing business looks like is like, there's so many different steps in the process where capacities are really different and where timelines are really different. And one of the biggest challenges is trying to get all those things to line up in a great way. And, you know, brew house capacity is way more than most breweries actually need to fill their fermenter space. So it feels like one of those things that a lot of production breweries probably have some extra capacity to spare, um, like particularly in the brew house, you know, where maybe they wouldn't have the space to ferment something. But luckily, you know, we're taking the wort away and fermenting in our own space. Um, they definitely have the brew house capacity to help us out. Yeah, that's a good point, because I know McLeod was doing some like full contract brewing for some other brands but had to stop because they are so busy. Their fermentation tanks are always taken up, but we don't have to use that for, with them. So it's, it's easier. That's Wait, true. how do you get the wort back to your place? <laughs> we have these big plastic, like 300 gallon totes. We rent a big flatbed truck every time we brew 
and just kind of forklift them on and off. Yeah. It's, it's pretty easy, actually. The very first couple of times we brewed with uh, San Fernando Brewing, we brought uh, barrels on the back of a truck. Oh, oh my God. It, uh, it was much more troublesome. Did it just spill on the 118 freeway all over oh the God. I just had a carboy of yeah. mead in my car, and I kept having nightmares about it. <laughs> Exciting. How often? And McLeod, for a while with McLeod too, they didn't have a forklift. And so we were using the like lift gate to try and get it on the truck. And we almost killed someone once there for sure. Uh, When Josiah was the brewer there, we like were lifting something and the whole tank fell off and almost crushed a person. Brewery nightmares. How often does that exchange happen? Uh, Pre COVID, we were starting to do it about once a week. Um, Right now, we aren't brewing that much sad yeah um we're getting we're getting back into it soon so we kind of were curious like in terms of market pressure because we know a lot of breweries and you know the main thing people want out of a brewery is some hype ass ipa super high abv hazy crazy you know and not to say that Celador doesn't make like beers that are very like you know get a lot of attention are very interested and intriguing but do you feel like you guys have the freedom to kind of do whatever you want and you'll still have you know the consumer base do you feel any market pressure to like make certain kinds of beers uh, i guess i'll talk for a minute and then i think alex Man, there's a lot in that question for me. I uh, part of me like kind of curse on this. I really don't give a fuck oh, like, yeah. what people want. Nice. Um, I want to do like what I want to do as much as possible, um, and to a certain extent, like we try and change with the times, but like stay true to ourselves. Like we're going, for example, we're going to start doing some like really small canning runs, but we're still going to do them naturally conditioned, like can conditioned. And it'll be barrel aged still. Um, but the, certainly the market is very different than it was five years ago when we started this brewery. Um, and I think that it's also safe to say that sours, if anything, are less popular than they were five years ago. Oh. And so it's been a challenge. Like we've had to adapt in a lot of ways. Um, that was part of bringing Alex on, like really <clears throat> shifting to a, a more. Um, wholesale distribution type model and and changing how much of we're making a beach beer um but as far as like demands we really want to stay true to like we make barrel fermented beers and they they're aged and they take a certain amount of time and we can bottle condition them the way we want to and um you can drink them or you can, uh, <laughs> you can drink hazy ipa or you can drink fruit loops beer i feel like you wanted to say that's oh, like you wanted to say you could go fuck off or <laughs> drink our beer i didn't say that i didn't say that you want Alex? Alex? i yeah. uh, like to bottle condition with honey too so i love nice. doing that i've never had any problem okay i've had a couple of problems <laughs> but i love that and i think it's like I think the bubbles are so cool. So bravo. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Alex, go ahead. I want to hear your yeah. thoughts. Oh, with, the, with market pressure? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's a lot of market pressure to do what everybody else is doing because it's popular, right? And I, I'm not convinced that that's a good move, you know, either in terms of being true to the brand that we want to create and that Kevin got into this business to try and create or in terms of actually creating a profitable brewery. I think that like there are a lot of brands that are built on hype. And if you're built on hype, you have to chase hype forever. Right. And I don't know that that's a place that I feel really comfortable. Um, I think also, you know, like every brewery out there is making hazy IPAs and some are better than others, but like, why would we want to compete in that market when we're doing something that's unique right now? You know, so that's, that's like my general thought about it. I also think that we need to start from a place of understanding like what our core competency as a brewery is and what the things Kevin, you know, is really good at are and what we want to be doing. So, you know, we should, 
I think be looking to the market and looking to where demand is in terms of different beer formats and whether we're putting beer in bottles or cans. I think we should be looking at the market in terms of understanding branding, in terms of understanding, you know, what accounts we want to be in, stuff like that. But I think at the end of the day, like we have to start from a place of saying, Kevin got into this business and and I joined this business because we felt excited about sour beers and about farmhouse styles and, and that whole family of beers. And to jump to something else that doesn't feel like our core competency doesn't feel... You know, like I said, not only doesn't feel like where our heart is at, but also doesn't feel like a good business decision. Like we should stick to what we're good at on some level. And it's okay. You know, it's like you go to a Chinese restaurant and you don't ask them to bring you a pizza and get mad when they don't have a pizza for you. Like it's okay for places to specialize in something. And not only is it hard to jump around and chase the trend and say like we need to make a lot of hazies or milkshake IPAs or pastry stouts or whatever is popular right now. But the idea that you need to be a brewery that has the capacity to put out, you know, if we want to be world class, to say that we need to actually be able to put out world class beers in every single category feels like we're going to fall short of short of our mark every time that we try and accomplish that. Right. We can dial in our process with farmhouse styles and we can create really compelling farmhouse styles. And if we need to be expert at a new style every two months, like we're never, ever going to get there. Yeah. And I like, I love IPA, especially West Coast IPA. And I'll drink, I mostly, I drink stuff like that from like El Segundo. And like the truth of the matter is we'll never make beer that good. <laughs> the IPA is that good. And so <laughs> might as well stick to what we're good at. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess I, I wasn't asking like if you guys are going to start making IPAs because <laughs> yeah, yeah. I get it. Like that wouldn't make sense. But I was just curious if there was market pressure on the side of like, do you feel like people are buying less of your beer? But also I feel like sours, I don't know. They are still kind of popular. I with the, I with the hype. Say that, Kevin. Yeah. The hype crew. They're like, they're out there's here. There's like sour hype, right? Like there's certain yeah, yeah. people who are really into sour beers, but the truth is like, we feel market pressure for that bigger jump also. Like people ask us like, when are you going to put out a hazy IPA? You know, I do wholesale sales and I go into accounts and talk to people and they say like, yeah, the sours are really good, but like call us when you start making IPAs. Really? And like, so they're like really genuinely is that market pressure pushing, you know, not just like how well are the sours selling and can you put more fruit in your stuff, which are like within our wheelhouse and so conversations that we're interested in having. But there really is market pressure to like jump to whatever is hypey you know, to compete with every other brewery in the city, which, you know, like I, you know, I think like we're on a certain page about it. And I think you all understand where we're coming from wanting to specialize in something, but like that market pressure that may sound illogical in the context of this conversation, like really does exist out there. Uh, and there's so, it's, what's interesting is that there's so few breweries that were like us and like stuck to their guns really heavily. Yeah. Um, it's I mean, I'm not gonna, seems... I'm not gonna call out Casa Gria, but I will because I went there. <laughs> I went there to go drop off beers for that vibe uh, homebrew competition, Don't and I was it. so shocked to see the amount of hazies and like what? double IP. There was like half, yeah. half the half the board Mostly was. Of it now, I yeah, I was half the board was hazy. I was like, am I at the right place? I don't know. I was shocked. Wait, I, like I have a theory. Shocked. You guys market yeah. pressure on other breweries to make sours, make bad sours. People don't drink sours as much thoughts. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, I was right. I'll, yeah. Yeah. Do you guys know who Andy black is? Yeah. No. He was at York. So he was, Yorkshire. Yeah. yeah. So he was actually the original brewer at McLeod. Oh. Oh, uh, and then, also helped start up Yorkshire. I was going to say Yorkshire is one of the places that um, I feel like I don't follow them super closely, but it seems like they've stuck pretty close to their guns on that. Mm -hmm. And I think that was also one of the reasons he left McLeod. And a Andy and I are kindred spirits in that sense. I listened to a <laughs> podcast with him. I, f I cannot remember who interviewed him, but it was so good. And yeah, he was talking about McLeod and stuff and I don't know. It, it was, I really, I really appreciated that interview with him. It was good stuff. Yeah. That's a guy that does what he's going to do no matter what anyone <laughs> says. <laughs> that, 
So the methods you should we open this other beer? Yeah. Oh yeah, we got one more. This exclusive. Unreleased. My first time tasting this beer too. I'm excited. Nice. I know. When I, I picked it up yesterday, and Alex was like, I haven't even tasted this beer. So I, like, <laughs> I love that we're all drinking the same beers. It's kind of adorable. It is fun. I know. I'm glad we we're able to. You all see the bottles here? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's hold them up. It's really gorgeous. Gorgeous bottle. It's gorgeous. Wow. I just, I just opened it. It smells so good. I'm going to try to save this yeast hit. <laughs> yeah. I want to, but the cap just fell on the ground somehow. <laughs> so, all right. You got a cap somewhere. <laughs> um, all right. So, this is a 2020 Tier 5 exclusive. Wait, it literally Must- does smell like roses. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Mustard, gas, and roses is the name of the beer. 6.5% alcohol. Wild ale with Masumoto spring bright nectarines, elderflowers, and dry hopped with Halato Blanc. Blanc. I don't know how to say that. Blanc. <laughs> Blanc. Mm. <laughs> oh shit! Mine's fizzing up. Let me pour it. This is when, so... when you're pronouncing our beers, just always lean into the French. Yeah. Lean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. So... When you said world class beers, it's that's an accurate. I would say that's an accurate. Uh, description for Celador Ales. Oh, that's very flattering. Just saying. Uh, so this process, the oak, the oak um, fermenting is super old, not ancient, but kind of ancient. What are some of the new, uh, the new twists that you bring to it to make it efficient or easy or s- sanitary? <laughs> you know, what, what do you? Bring I'll let Alex it, tell you the answer to this question. To like kind of. That we don't. <laughs> I, my, you know, my uh, throwaway line here is: if there's a less efficient, more difficult way to make the beer, please let us know because we'll do it. Okay. <laughs> so it's not as efficient no. as I'm thinking. There's nothing efficient about it. Yeah. That's cool. Um, in fact, Alex is like he's joking, but actually he's right. Like I, for the um, the specialty projects that we like to do, for me, it's all about like doing things in like a really traditional, really hands-on way. And so like, we'll do things like um, disgorging bottles, which is like a really traditional champagne process where you like get the yeast out of the bottle and then, and then cork it. Extremely (laughs) difficult process. Um, And um, rarely do I think about how do you make something more efficient? It's all like, what can we do that's like, even more difficult. And so like the other day um, or early in the year, we made a beer with um, sugar cane, but we used raw sugar cane where we had to like. Uh, I saw those photos and I was like, holy <laughs> shit. It's, it's the, the hardest thing we've ever done in our lives, but uh, also um, a fun, fun thing to do. I mean, I, for a few that. What? I think about our beer. Sorry, go ahead. Walk us through that. How did you make the beer with sugar cane? So um, sugarcane comes with like a really hard exterior. Mm-hmm. And if you're processing it like on a commercial scale or even like a medium scale, they have make machines that like sort of like scrape off the exterior and then like juice the relatively hard interior also. Um, we couldn't afford one of those machines. So we use uh, just regular knives and like sort of scraped off all the hard exterior and then we um, ended up, the interior is really hard still to juice. And so we ended up using a, a juicer, a juicing machine, but we had to cut them into small pieces. It took us maybe five days to do like 200 pounds. Y'all went yeah. full Rambo. <laughs> all, Polynesian situation, sugarcane. Wow. Whatever you're picturing of a guy on the side of the road with a machete taking that stuff apart, this was less yeah. efficient than, less <laughs> yeah. than that, I promise. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, I mean, the thing that I was going to say a minute ago was that I think, um, you know, when I think about the beers that Celador makes and the thing that makes our beers special, you know, obviously a lot of it is the blending and Kevin's palate, but a lot of it is that our beers and the way that we approach our beers are really driven, you know, both by fermentation and also by process. And the process 
of the way the beers come together is a lot of what adds the character and adds the complexity to the beers. And so, you know, back to the idea of like how efficient is it and how have we improved those processes? A lot of the processes are inefficient because we're doing them for the first time and learning as we go. But a lot of the complexity of the beer comes from engaging in those processes and being willing to do things that are really hands-on and really labor-intensive. Um, so you guys like to do it the hard way. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like when I pass uh, Budweiser every day, it's like, brewed the hard way. I'm like, y'all don't even, y'all don't even know. <laughs> Yeah, what's up yeah Tyler you were there when we bottled our like you mentioned our last batch of rosier and uh, all the corks are put on by hand and all the um the cages for the corks are put on by Dude, hand it my, takes a long time my arm the next day was like yeah. girl what did you just do yesterday <laughs> um <laughs> I want to ask you since we're since you've blessed us with this um club exclusive beer uh which is really really fucking good just saying um what is the like what yeah tell us about it what's going on here yeah so uh we have a beer club and within that beer club is like an exclusive club within that club which we call tier five or tier v and um the club in general for us is a way to showcase like either our most experimental stuff or just our best stuff. And for me, this is a little bit of both. So it was one barrel of nectarine beer that I liked quite a bit and um, had been wanting to do something with dry hops and fruit for a while. We did one beer called Akimbo back in the day, which was that way, but wanted to do something a little more intense. And so um doing some research and talking to people, it seemed like how a Tower Blanc would be a really unique thing. And also I had um, been wanting to add elderflowers too. And how a Tower Blanc hops seemed to have like an elder, uh, an elderflower component to their flavor. And so um, it's sort of like a beer. I guess I'll step back. Mostly we make beers that are made with like one thing. So it's like nectarines, or it's elderflowers, or it's dry hops, and wanted to experiment with like putting a bunch of shit together and seeing if we could make something that was like ultra flavorful, but also had a nice balance to it. Smells it's amazing. It's incredible. Where did the mustard? Like, but I love what these type of beers are like. Not knowing exactly like where the fermentation character starts and the the fruit character and the hop character and like what are the elderflowers doing? It's like, maybe you can pick them out here and there, but like, especially as it like warms up and changes, like it all just kind of like melds together in something bigger, ideally. Where did this mustard gas in the title come from? Uh, mustard gas and roses is uh it's a common refrain from the book Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut. Actually the photo behind me is a quote from Slaughterhouse Five too. I like Kurt Vonnegut a lot. Yeah. And um, I like especially things uh, like obscure quotes from books that are about drinking. And so Mustard, Gas, and Roses was something he said about people who, who's like the breath of people who had just drunk a lot. <laughs> I, I read one Kurt Vonnegut book and it was the Sirens of Titan? Sirens of Titan. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great Loved one. it. So good. I started to try to like start a couple others and I couldn't get through it, but I'll, I want to try Slaughterhouse Five. I'll do that one next. It's great. It's one of the best books ever, I think. Okay. I've read it a bunch of times. You sold me. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, it's it's a very really it's a really good beer. I like when you're saying <clears throat> like as it warms up the stuff starts to just kind of come together and that's cool that you're open to just figuring out if that's taste, if that blends nicely or, I mean, have you guys ever dumped beer or do you guys just. Uh, a couple times it took, we didn't for like the first two years. I like, what I like to say about it is that if you're making sour beer and you have to dump your beer, it's because you did something wrong. There's nothing wrong that happened with the beer. And that's true of what's happened with us. It's like, 
a bone comes off the barrel and like we didn't notice mm-hmm. or we didn't top it off quick enough and like there's a bunch of headspace and it got bad or uh, we didn't pitch like healthy yeast. It's it's always a user error if you're dumping beer. And so it's happened a couple times, but thankfully maybe three barrels or four barrels we've dumped in our four years. Wow. That said, we're about to uh, experience yeah. <laughs> uh-uh. with uh, beer that otherwise would have to be dumped. We're, uh, we're going to play around with turning beer into kind of like Celador, sour beer, malt vinegar. Um, oh. You know, so no promises about how that's going to come out. But that's uh, yeah. <laughs> on, the, on the horizon, possibly. Yeah, it's, just kind of like taking something that we would have dumped and pumping as much oxygen as we can into it and just making vinegar. That's acetic yeah. acid? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah. When are you going to make hand sanitizer? <laughs> <laughs> sour hand sanitizer? I like it. This is a, a nectarine sour hand sanitizer. Yeah, sticky. Like, you know, some so, are more sticky than others. And ours is going to be really sticky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so thinking about uh, like owning a, a brewery or a business in Los Angeles and it's the pandemic and it sounds like um, you're – your beer club or your bottle club, has that been really instrumental in keeping the funds in and keeping the interest high? Like how, how does that work, work with your business? Um, yeah. I mean, 100%. Those people are like the lifeblood of the brewery and like we would not exist even before COVID if it weren't for like the extreme support of like a local community that really cares about what we're doing. And that's amazing. Um, obviously for every business and especially breweries, like the pandemic has been tough. And like, I think like right when it happened, like even when we thought things were only going to be closed for a couple months, I was like, we're not going to make it in my head. It's like lost sleepover about it. It's not going to work. Um, and, um, people have been amazing and they've supported us and it's very, very moving and touching. Would you estimate how many, um, members are in your club? This year we have 300 members in our club. Oh, that's Im- impressive. Which was um, like similar to previous years a little bit. I think we had a little bit more actually last year. So um, it's, it's like a decent sized club. I was actually talking with um, Kyle from Horse H Tales about clubs this week. And they, theirs is about the same size. So I think it's like a pretty generic kind of couple hundred people yeah. in club size. And I'm curious. We're... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I'm on a roll. I was we're we're about to uh to open club enrollment again like you know as we're recording this we're like a few weeks away from enrolling next year's club membership so we're you know we're excited to do it I think it like builds community in the brewery like an open enrollment benefits program you only have a limited open enrollment like benefits program yeah we just do it's open once a year okay um for re-enrollments um and if anyone's interested, there sh- there's probably going to be space, but it's it's it could be tight. I would say it opens to the public on. Do you know the date, Alex? Yeah, it's like it, we start. We kind of roll it out in phases. So the first phase starts on November first, uh, which is to our tier five members to re-enroll, and then basically the the other members start about a week after that, and the waitlist is about a week after that, and then it'll go to the public where it normally sold, sells out pretty quickly. Um, just about a week after that. Oh, so there's an exclusivity there's, sort of to it. Um, like you're only yeah, I mean, we, a certain amount of bottles for that club, for your club. I mean, the original plan for the club was that it was a single barrel, right? So there was kind of, okay. you know, it was called the single barrel syndicate. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea was that it's kind of limited to the amount of beer that can be produced that way. So we've expanded it a little bit, but it's still something where, you know, we don't have capacity to bring five, 600 people into the club. And it typically, you know, will sell out based on whatever we're planning to release for the year pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Because we have different, there's like five different tiers to it. It's not really about the amount of people that are in it, but about like the total amount of bottles because every tier gets different amount of bottles that, that limits our capacity. That's so That's cool. crazy. Five tiers. That's, that's awesome. You get to also yeah, it's a little it's a little ridiculous, but like the idea of it in the beginning was that most beer clubs are like 
$300 or whatever to join. And we wanted to have an option for people to join and not spend that much money. So like the lowest ones, only $125 for the year. And you get at least a bottle of, of everything that we that we release for the club. And then tier five gets one of these bad boys. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's so cool. I mean, that's something that I like about our clubs in particular is that like, you know, we're kind of this blend of like highbrow and lowbrow in a way, right? Like we want to produce beers that are not to everybody's taste, right? Sour beers are pretty niche thing in a lot of ways. Um, and we don't want to compromise what we're doing to follow the trends all the time. We want to do something interesting and something that we feel excited about. And at the same time, we want to create an opportunity for people to come in and experience the brand in a pretty like low investment sort of way where, where it's not, you know, it's not the case that you need to throw down three or 400 bucks even to be part of the membership club, that there's a pretty accessible way to get in and, uh, you know, and get those beers and get a discount on everything too. What beer would you guys say kind of like put Celador on the map? Uh, I don't know. My instinct is that it's a lot of beers, but I think the one beer that people talk about a lot is the Carrot King. Um, the Hop Culture, beer. right? Hop Culture? The Hop Culture collaboration Club. made with carrots. Um, and mostly I think that's because of the color. So we actually use the carrot juice to bottle condition it. And so once you like rotate that back into solution in the bottle, the beer is like this very bright orange color. It's very uh, photographable. And um, especially like at festivals pouring for it, people always get excited. And I just get excited because people care about uh, vegetable beer. Uh, <laughs> shoot. How much carrot juice do you need to bottle condition? <laughs> Quite a bit. It's about, I want to say it's like 30% of the, uh, of the volume of the beer is carrot juice. Oh my god! Isn't there a thing where if you eat too many carrots, you turn orange or something like that? I don't know. I know that there's a we make a beet beer, and I know there's like you can definitely eat too many beets. And yes, I wanted to say the Petalum was easily or is easily one of my favorite Celador beers. And I nice. That's awesome. the first time I had it. I was like, holy crap! I didn't think it would be this good, but um. Yeah, if you guys are out there and you see that beer, definitely try it. It's amazing. Yeah, we just made it recently, so it's out It's out a lot of places right now. Also, you know, I think beets are a more divisive vegetable than carrots, but, like, how pretty is that in the glass, that Petaloon? It's, like, so pretty to look at. Yeah. Gorgeous. It's the, definitely the, the reddest beer we make yeah. out of a lot of red beers. My favorite's the Clockwork, and the last time I had a bottle, she drank it all. What? It was not me. It was not me. You know who it was? He who shall not be named. That's funny. That's actually one of my personal favorite beers. The first year we made it, it was draft only, not in bottles. And we poured it at um, the Eat Drink Vegan Festival that they put on at uh, the Rose Bowl. And like I was just drinking like the whole keg of it myself because I, I liked it a lot. Wait, and now we've made a couple, made it a couple of times. You used honey? For that festival, we made some beers. We forced carbonated some kegs without yeah. honey. So the beers we brought to that didn't have honey, but other than that, most of our beers had honey. Oh, almost caught you. Almost caught you there. <laughs> hey, don't start badgering our guests here. <laughs> oh, I'm badgering the vegans. <laughs> we made sure. Also, really, I know honey. I didn't know honey was not vegan. This is news to me. So uh, You know what Tyler and I also had recently that blew my mind was the tiki and oh, nice. little nutmeg detail so good can you tell us about Thank that you. beer I, I love it tastes yeah that's another but actually yeah it's a bottle conditioning experiment beer but one that's a little more lowbrow because we use uh, cans of dull pineapple juice yes bottle conditioner i read it on the bottle <laughs> yeah <laughs> and wow. uh we infused it before that with some orange and some coconuts to make it like a painkiller tiki yeah cocktail inspired beer um and it turned out really nicely yeah it's it's fun and we decided to release it with there's a little um burlap sack that has a nutmeg inside that came with every single bottle yeah that, Let me that... Just 
sorry, for anybody that's listening that has that beer around, put a little bit of nutmeg on the glass. You don't have to grind the whole. Yeah, nut- a real a real right. light dusting of nutmeg. Just a microplaner or a microplaner, yeah. and just a little bit of the nut. It's a, a, it's a light aromatic thing. If you overdo it, it's gonna not be great for you. I, I've, I've been seeing some pictures on Instagram where it looks like people went out to get three more nutmegs to grind all <laughs> beer. Half the nuts just like shave down. You're like, no. (laughs) (laughs) I actually found that nut just like rolling around the floor the next day. So (laughs) cat was probably playing with it. Save it and make a real, make a real painkiller with it. Drink more tiki drinks. Yes. So you guys, this, so at the time of recording this pod, um, y'all have just celebrated your fourth anniversary this past weekend. Congrats again. Um, I wanted to ask three things. So what is your best moment of the past four years? Your proudest? Well, I guess maybe those are the same. Best, proudest, and worst moments of the past four years. <laughs> Kevin, you go first. No, no pressure. No so pressure. many bad moments. <laughs> uh, I think my proudest was like really... All of the big events we've thrown. So like our last two anniversary releases, like throwing those events, just like seeing the people come out and enjoy the beers, as well as like the sour. We throw like we've thrown two Southern California focused sour beer festivals at the brewery. And just to see the sour like beer community come together and to see everyone be excited about those beers is really, really great. Uh worst experiences. Um there's been a lot of setbacks, but something that comes to mind is in our first year of brewing, um, we lost power for like three months <laughs> and uh, it was terrible. <laughs> it was really terrible. How is that even possible? Good Lord. Yeah, our power. I mean, I'm not going to blame the weed growers that share a building with us, but it was definitely their fault. They exploded the power box. And so we were doing everything like in the dark with lights and like with gravity uh it sucks for three months oh my god that's like barbaric <laughs> that almost seems worse than a pandemic but i, I should take that away i should that's <laughs> funny um so for our listeners yeah. your um well how about you alex your your high yeah do you have highs and lows Alex? um yeah i mean i I don't know. You know, I agree with Kevin. I think like Sourfest last year in particular was like really a lot of fun and great, um, you know, and great to see that community come together. I really love those moments, right? Like I really love when I feel a sense of community at the brewery. So also, you know, a lot of the membership events that we do throughout the year, even like bottle shares and stuff that we'll do for our members are really great to see people come out and, you know, and (laughs) kind of engage with the sour beer community around them. And then lows, I don't know. I mean, you know, like Kevin said, there's lots of bumps in the road. I think a lot of the, a lot of the beginning of this pandemic shutdown and a lot of the uncertainty and anxiety about what, what was going to, you know, be even possible in the future for the brewery and whether the brewery could survive it. Um, those were some, you know, some bumpy moments, but most of good. Yeah, I have another low I'll share with you. Go for <laughs> almost it. Exact, almost exactly a year ago, I was like cleaning some fruit out of barrels and dropped one of them and had to get like nine stitches on my finger. Oh, um, yeah. That sucks. Wow. Yeah. That was- I, I had called Alex and I was like, hey, man. <laughs> I was in the middle of a brew day, too. I was like, can you finish this brew day for me? <laughs> I'm- and then I came back. And also come get you from the hospital and. Yeah. yeah, it was that was an exciting day at the brewery. That's a true friend. It always so, sounds like it's an exciting day at the brewery. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> well, there's beer within arm's reach, so that does sound pretty exciting, to be honest. Yeah. What are some of the like the future plans for Celador? Um, I know it's difficult to to vision that right now, given um, what we're dealing with. But share with us any sort of like goals or future p- plans for the brewery. Yeah, we'd love to keep making beer through next year. That would be awesome. That's an awesome plan. <laughs> um, 
but in a, in a real ideal situation, like we'd love to expand into a bigger space and have a restaurant and a bigger tap room. And for us, like for me, the core of Seldor is barrel fermented, even like on top of sour. And so we'd love to do some barrel or food or age lagers and pilsners. That's something that we dream about. Um, and outside of that, just like continuing to do what we do and maybe make a little bit more of it and improve the quality, but stick to the core of Celador, sours, saisons. Awesome. Uh, what's your distribution like? Like where can our listeners, <clears throat> if we're not going to swing by Hood Valley, Van Nuys. Uh, North Hills. I, North Hills. I've picked it up at <laughs> Southland Beer. That's one of my little spots. But what are some other places that people can find um, Celador Ales? Uh, we're in a lot of, you know, a lot of places around Southern California. You know, I'm, Southland Beer is a great one in Koreatown. Um, but, you know, I mean, I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to list them because we're in so many different neighborhoods. But generally, we're in kind of some high-end restaurants throughout L.A. And then, you know, nice bottle shops and places that focus on craft beer. And a handful of Whole Foods locations have some of our bottles. But if anybody's ever interested and wants to find a place that carries our beer... Feel free to shoot us an Instagram message and we can send you, you know, three or four places that are in your neighborhood. Um, and also, if you have places that you would like to see our beer, uh, feel free to let us know and, uh, you know, badger the owners of those shops a little bit. Uh-huh. And I mean, you guys are delivering now, too, right? This is, you know, COVID times. And what's the, yeah, what's we, the deal with that? You know, we've been uh, we've always shipped throughout the state, actually. So we still do that. Uh, we're also delivering. On orders over $75, we're delivering like within 20 miles of the brewery every week. But we also do delivery runs as far down as like San Diego and up through Northern California, uh, you know, every couple of months. So people can check out the schedule, which is on our website uh, when we're hitting different areas. But we hit most of the state with free delivery on orders over 75. Very cool. And currently, is your tap? What's your tap room situation right now? If you don't mind sharing, we're we're hoping to get the tap room open in the near future. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, breweries in Los Angeles County were just recently cleared to reopen, and it's something we're working on. We think that we can put some seating kind of in our back parking lot, and uh, our hope is, you know, by mid November, maybe early to mid November, that we can be open with some seating back there. But those plans are, you know, they're a little soft at the moment. We're still kind of figuring it out. I can't imagine. It sounds like such a clusterfuck. And I'm 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 so sorry that this is like, <laughs> like I'm a teacher, but like I feel more bad for the breweries. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, and then also you're selling stuff through um, your your main address. People can swing by and, and pick up from your storefront correct? Yeah. So we, you know, we used to just be open on the weekends, but now we're open seven days a week from noon to seven. So people are welcome to swing by the brewery anytime. Uh, we just started filling crowlers this last weekend. So now, you know, we don't have to do growlers, uh, which is a nice change. And, you know, you're welcome just to walk up to the front door of the brewery and, and buy some stuff. We can't, we're not set up for people to really come inside. Um, but we're kind of selling out of the front door of the brewery. Still, Yeah, and if you see something like new that we're releasing you're interested in, uh, everything goes on our website, and we'll hold that for 90 days. Nice. Cool. Yeah. What's your Instagram and, IG for people? Seldor um, underscore ales. Got it. Yeah, and that's a great way to reach out. If anybody has questions of how to get something, where a particular beer has been sold, um, or, you know, what shops it's in or, you know, when we're releasing things at the tap room, Instagram is a great way to get in touch with us. Also, they have really pretty pictures. <laughs> Thank you. They look awesome. Um, all right, cool. Well, I guess uh, if, if there's anything else um, that you guys want to end off with, we have follow them at, uh, at Celador underscore Ales. The website is celadorales.com. Is there a, any other social medias that you guys are pretty active on, or is it mostly Instagram? Those are the main ones. We're on Facebook also, but but honestly, you know, Instagram is probably a little bit better way to keep up to date with what's going on. Yeah. And then, yeah, also, also obviously, Swing by the Brewery. It's in North Hills. That's like San Fernando Valley area. So if you're in the area, please go. 
or hit me up. I'll get you some and I'll bring it to you. I'll try to. <laughs> um, what were you saying, Lori? You actually will because then you can swing by and get some more. Yeah, or I can. Well, thanks you guys for joining us and thank you so much for doing what you do. Your your stuff is so unique and so tasty and I'm I'm glad you're not making hazies and I I hope you never do. I really do. We make a hazy sour beer. Oh, okay. Yeah, make a oak <laughs> oak barrel fermented sour hazy IPA madness. No. Um, but yeah, I want to also say thank you you guys, uh, I met you guys like probably a year ago, and since then you guys have been really cool. Help, uh, let me help uh, do some packaging and hang around the brewery, and I'm super inspired by what you do. And Kevin, you're like kind of like awesome to me, so you know, <laughs> <laughs> kind of a role okay. model. Um, so I I appreciate you guys giving uh, us your time for that for the episode, and um, yeah. Go check out Celador. They make badass beer. Really awesome, world-class stuff. And um, yeah, check them out. Okay, thank yeah, you. Thanks. Great talking with you guys. Thanks. Yeah, it's good talking to you. Thanks for having us on. Of course, anytime. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Podcast and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. The Brewed Up music is produced by LA legend producer Elusive. <laughs>